Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Well, good morning to you all. I've been looking forward to this um, series for some time now. Uh, They asked me to give a little bit of a disclaimer before we begin this morning. I just want you to know uh, that I am fully vaccinated and my wife, uh, so we are COVID uh, free and protected. Uh, I guess I just gave up our HIPAA rights, but um, over the last uh, three years, I've struggled with some pulmonary illnesses, some chronic illnesses, uh, eosinophilic uh, pneumonia and bronchiectasis. One puts your immune system in power drive and attacks your uh, lungs, and the other uh, is a deterioration of the airwaves that uh, uh, is supposed to work to keep your lungs uh, clean and uh, unobstructed so that you can breathe, both of which seem to be uh, were working against me. And after a couple hospitalizations, a trip to the Mayo Clinic and surgery and another um, uh, hospitalization, I hate to say it, but a uh, doctor who graduated from Ohio State uh, down at United Methodist solved my problem. And uh, the last year and a half, uh, he has uh, put me on treatments that have greatly improved the quality of life. But occasionally, I end up with what's called an exacerbation and uh, struggle. And I've been struggling the last couple of weeks, which means that in the course of uh, time today, uh, with the strain on my uh, lungs and my voice, I may cough. And uh, so hence the reason that they asked me to give a little bit of a disclaimer today that um, <clears throat> these illnesses are uh, not something that are communicable. communicable. So there, I uh, got that out of the way. Uh, tagged along with that from someone who struggled with some pulmonary uh, issues. I was uh, greatly appreciative and thankful for Pastor Phelps' leadership during the COVID uh, crisis and all the precautions that were taken uh, for that. And for those who worked in the audiovisual um, production or ministry here, I should say, at uh, Colonial uh, to enable us to stay connected to the church and grow uh, during a period when uh, there were just a lot of restrictions on gathering. Uh, it, is good to vo- it was good to come back to church and even sing with a mask on. And uh, so I rejoiced in that and am very thankful uh, for how the Lord uh, guided our uh, pastoral leadership with wisdom uh, through that time frame. And I just wanted to express uh, that this morning. If we were to sum up the life of the Apostle Paul, we might choose Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A similar verse in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul no longer lived for himself. He lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so we engage in this study, Epics in the Life and Ministry of Paul, One Faithful Life. We understand that uh, over 30 years of ministry, we're not going to cover that in four weeks. So we've uh, selected some topics that I help, uh, hope will help us uh, understand uh, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We'll be looking at his call to salvation, his commitment to serve, his courage in suffering, and his charge to the saints. This morning we want to focus on his call to salvation, his conversion experience there in the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. The conversion of Saul is perhaps the most crucial or famous conversion in all of church history. Ralph Lauren calls it in his commentary that it was Christianity's most remarkable conversion. We find three accounts of it in the book of Acts given to us, uh, written by Luke. The actual experience in Acts chapter 9, Paul's personal testimony in Acts chapter 22 after he was arrested in Jerusalem, and then in Acts chapter 26 again before King Agrippa uh, as he was taken there after appealing uh, to Caesar. A.T. Robertson wrote in 1909 that Paul stands forever as the foremost representative of Christ, the ablest exponent of Christianity, the most constructive genius, the most fearless champion, the most illustrious and influential missionary preacher, teacher, and the most distinguished Christian martyr. More recently, Charles Swindoll in his book on the Apostle Paul wrote, no conversion is more significant in all of the New Testament than that of Saul, the archenemy of Christians in the first century. Had a list been made of those least likely ever to humble themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ, Saul would have appeared first at the top of the list. But God took hold of Saul's life, turned him around full circle, because God has never met his match. The persecutor became a preacher of the gospel, the greatest missionary of all time, and the most prolific writer in the Bible. God used Paul to write nearly a third of the New Testament, laying the doctrinal foundation for the church, justification by faith, the sanctification of the believer, the inspiration and sufficiency of Scripture, the offices of the church, the second coming of Christ. We could go on with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and many others. Some scholars have thus pondered the question, what if Paul had not been converted? What would have happened to Christianity? After all, we know Paul's intention. Galatians 1.13, you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Similar question could be asked perhaps about George Washington, the father of our country. So you get a little bit of the Christian heritage class here too. What if George Washington, for example, had fought for the British instead of for the Patriots? Would we still be a nation today? What would the course of America have been and how America has impacted the world? Scholars can speculate on George Washington, but when it comes to Paul's conversion, there's no speculation. God didn't need Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, God nearly slew Moses before the Exodus because he had failed to circumcise his children. 
fail to be in obedience to God's word. God didn't need Moses. God did not need Paul. And so they forget the promise of Christ that was even made before the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. To the apostle Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the fact of the matter is that God did choose to build his church through the preaching of his word and through Paul's conversion. That was part of his plan. And so it was a pivotal moment in the expansion of the gospel. In Acts 9.16, God said to Ananias, go and see Paul. He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and through the Apostle Paul that would be expanded throughout the known world at that time. We begin in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, where the Bible tells us this. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if, he owned, uh, that if he found any of this way, as you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And those who were found of this way were followers of Jesus Christ. That if any be found any of this way, whether they were men or women, regardless of breaking up families, breaking up homes, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city. And it shall be told thee what thou must do. In many ways, Saul's conversion was uniquely remarkable. Blinding light, a heavenly vision, a thundering voice, a miraculous healing. And if we only focused on those things, we'd miss some things that were very important. Because although remarkable in many aspects, Saul's conversion is typical of Christian conversion today. You say, what do you mean by that? At the age of six, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. We lived across the street from Dix Avenue Baptist Church in Lincoln Park, Michigan, where my father was an assistant pastor. One Sunday night after church, I had a lot of questions. My father sat down the coffee table in our living room, opened his Bible, and shared with me the message of the gospel. There was no blinding light. There was no heavenly vision. There was no thundering voice, no miraculous healing. Just a man sitting down with God's word, explaining to his son the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that night, I was born again. I was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And it is as if one songwriter said, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. That moment was cemented in my mind all these years because my grandmother called right after that 
from North Carolina, and she was the first one that I told that I had just been saved. You see, that is what happens when God gets a hold of a person's heart. And that in itself is the greatest miracle, the giving of life, spiritual life, eternal life, to one who was spiritually dead. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he doesn't focus on the miraculous. He says, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What new things happened in Paul's life? He suddenly had a new reverence for God. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament scripture. He'd studied the Bible all his life. He'd followed all the Pharisaical rules with zeal. He was blameless before the law, but his worship was not genuine. Suddenly, when he was born again, he could worship God in spirit and in truth. He had a new reverence for God that he didn't have before. He had a new relationship with the church. And he had a new responsibility to the world. Those are things that are typical to every born-again believer. Let's look at a new reverence from God. Simultaneously, God is moving Saul from rebellion to repentance and from destruction to devotion. The Lord describes Saul's rebellion and his self-destructed mentality as an ox kicking against the goats. You know what a goat was? It was a cattle prod. They used those electrical sticks today, but back in those days, they used a sharp a sharpened uh, tool, a, a, a stick, to prod the cattle along. And they would tie them even to the plow itself. And it took less stress on the uh, man behind the plow. And so naturally when the cows or the uh, oxen uh, slowed down or stopped or tried to sit down and relax, they were prodded to move along. And the oxen only brought destruction inflicted self-pain when they resisted. So a stubborn ox only worked against himself when he rebelled. Now this was a formidable tool because we read in Judges chapter 3 and 30, verse 31 that Shamgar slew 600 Philistines with an ox goat. The Bible says that Paul was kicking against those ox goats. He was kicking against the pricks. He was inflicting uh, further harm to himself by resisting God's word. A portrait of Saul before his uh, conversion helps us to understand how it was that Paul, who thought he was serving God by persecuting the church, was just kicking against those ox goats. Before he was saved, he was confident in his own self-righteousness. Born and raised in the city of Tarsus, of the tribe of Benjamin, by birth a Roman citizen, taught by the greatest teacher in Israel at that time, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, and the son of a Pharisee. Steeped in his own self-righteousness, he said, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh, that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, 
touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul said, I was at the apex of my pharisaical career. Yet those things which were gained to me, I did what? I counted them lost for Christ. He said in Galatians 1.14 that he profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. You know, many artists paint self-portraits. This was Rembrandt's self-portrait in 1659, a year after he'd finished his portrait of six, in 1658. Picasso, likewise, painted self-portraits through the years. He was considered the 20th century's greatest artist after having survived two world wars in the 1900s, World War I, World War II. He painted this picture of himself in his early years, age 16. I look at that and I thought that was probably how Paul must have thought of himself as a young pharisaical student of the law. That was Picasso's self-portrait at the age of 92. Quite the difference. Reminded me of Romans 7, where Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Of course, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, looking back at his life, he did not see himself now as that self-portrait in his early years, but rather, he looked back on those years and he was troubled by his past. He describes himself looking back on his sinful past that he was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. He was, in other words, arrogant and violent and rebellious in spirit. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In Acts chapter 26, in his testimony before King Agrippa, he said, I verily thought uh, with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was set on a course to defame the name of Christ. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many other saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. It was not enough that he himself was a blasphemer. He wanted others to curse the name of Jesus. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even to strange cities. In Acts chapter 22, his prayer was, Lord, these Jews in Jerusalem seeking to kill me. They know that I have imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, kept the raiment of them that slew him. Indeed, the first time we meet Saul in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 6 and 7. He was a young man, a young Pharisee involved in a debate with Stephen, as were many others. They were unable to refute Stephen's wisdom. 
Stephen described them in response as stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. That they were men who were resisting the Holy Spirit. They were the betrayers and murderers of the just one. And when Saul could take it no more, he consented to Stephen's death. The Bible says, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. After stoning of Stephen, <clears throat> Saul became consumed with destroying the church. Some would, say he, some would say he would describe him as his blood was up. Acts chapter 8. Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution that uh, uh, spawned there in, in uh, Jerusalem against the church. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, the leader of this persecution, the instigator, the inspiration behind it, if you will, he made havoc of the church entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they were scattered abroad. They that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So Saul's prideful rebellion against God culminated in his war against the church. He made havoc of it, as we read, imprisoned both men and women, compelled them by torture to blaspheme, voted to put believers to death, Persecuted the church beyond measure. That word wasted there in Galatians 1.13 means to ravage. Like an enemy army and the destruction of a city that it has captured. It was, what do they call it, a scorched earth type policy. Paul sought to waste and ravage the church. Now while Saul could not refute Stephen's wisdom... The Bible does explain to us that he eventually overcame Gamaliel's warning. You remember that after the arrest of Peter and John in Acts chapter 5, that Gamaliel came in and, and uh, counseled the Sanhedrin against doing any great injury to them. He said to them, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, reputation among all the people, said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. Refrain from these men. Let them alone. For if the counsel of this work be of men, it will, come, it will be not. But if God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. And to that they all agreed in Acts chapter 5. But then came the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And the persecution that followed in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 9, the pursuing even to Damascus. Paul said, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Saul contemplated his response. He calculated his actions. He conceived a plan. He convinced the council even over the advice of his own teacher for many years, Gamaliel. And the force of his personality went over the Sanhedrin. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he be found any of this way, 
whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. So Saul was not satisfied with the persecution only in Jerusalem, which took place in Acts chapter 8. He was consumed by a passion to defame and destroy the name of Christ in the New Testament church. And so he carried his wrath to foreign cities, targeting Damascus. Now Damascus was about 150 miles north, a journey of about six days. Population at that time, about 150,000 people, an estimated Jewish population of 20,000 There was a, or more. There was a Jewish synagogue that was there. And, uh, you know, today that area has, uh, over the last decade or so, 20 years, uh, been very dangerous to travel, and I'm sure it was during Paul's day as well, except he was the one who was the terrorist. Some scholars have questioned whether, tra- uh, whether Saul traveled through Samaria. You know, a, a good Pharisaical Jew would not do that. Remember, Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Some have suggested maybe Paul took a route through Samaria. It was a long route on the other side of the Jordan. But what was happening was that as, as uh, Saul's persecution scattered, believers spread the word and they spread it throughout Samaria. Philip preached in Samaria. After the success that uh, Philip had in Samaria, then Peter and John went to Samaria. And we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, that they preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Whether or not, I don't think that Paul traveled through Samaria at that time because of his Jewish ties. But nevertheless, these reports of what was happening in Samaria must have come to him. And his rage would have just intensified as he made this long journey so that he was even more passionate about destroying the church in Damascus. As he journeyed, the Bible tells us, he came near Damascus. Suddenly there shined around him this light from heaven and he fell to the earth. Heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And naturally he said, who art thou, Lord? And then he knew. The Lord responded, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And persecuting the church, Saul was really persecuting the Lord himself. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Some have suggested that there was a secret struggle going on in the heart of Saul at that time since the stoning of Stephen. After all, Stephen looked up to heaven and saw that vision. Others around him looked upon him and said, uh, as, uh, looked upon him as if uh, Stephen had, uh, uh, looked, had the face of an angel himself as he communicated with the Lord. At that moment, Saul, seeing this great vision, hearing the voice of Jesus say, I am Jesus whom thou persecuted." He knew that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And he had risen from the dead, as it had been said. In conviction of sin, he surrendered his heart to the Lord in faith. The Bible says, in trembling, he, uh, and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The scripture says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I believe this was the moment of Saul's conversion. 
pivotal point in the advancement of the gospel as we've already expressed from Samaria or from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now through Paul it would go to the ends of the earth. Before he made havoc of the church, afterwards he proclaimed the gospel he once despised and planted churches that he had once sought to destroy. What a change in a man's life. The church's greatest enemy became its greatest evangelist, its greatest foe became its greatest friend. He wrote in his testimony, and uh, said in his testimony in Acts chapter 26 to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient under the heavenly vision. I could resist the Holy Spirit no more. He surrendered his heart and faith. Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias, said to him, the Lord, uh, and, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, Lord, I'm here. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Now Saul had prayed many times before as a Pharisee, but never with a born-again heart. Never now, never with that access directly into the throne room of grace through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those lips that once breathed out blasphemy and threatenings and slaughter now breathed out prayer and praise. John Stott in his commentary on the book of Acts says he spent those three days in fasting and praying, that is abstaining from nourishment in order to give himself without distinction to prayer. He was devoted now to Christ. As a Pharisee, he could never say with genuine meaning, Abba, Father. But now with the redeemed heart, he had a new relationship with the Lord. He had a new reverence for God that he never had before. We don't know exactly what he may have prayed, but maybe a glimpse of it is found much later in life when he wrote to 1 Timothy or when he wrote to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 15, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, persecutor, and injurious, but obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Paul had a new reverence for God that he never had before. He also had a new relationship with the church, as seen and evidenced by a brotherly affection and a faithful proclamation. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 9 and verse 10 that there was a certain disciple named Ananias. The Lord told him to go and uh, meet and greet Saul. And Ananias answered in verse 13, he said, Lord, I have heard many of this man, how much evil he hath done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind that, all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, 
And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hast sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight. And immediately there fell from his eyes that it had been scales and he received his sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. William Barclay has called Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian faith. Probably the pastor of the church in Damascus, initially hesitant, ultimately obedient, but enthusiastic to Saul in his greeting. Putting his hands on him in verse 17, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight. Brother Saul. They were the first words that Saul heard as a new believer from a fellow Christian. A symbol of acceptance and a term of endearment. Words that welcomed him into the family of God underscores the bond that you and I have as believers in Christ. And the infection, this was a term that Paul adopted, used it with affection as he wrote his letters in the New Testament. To the Romans, for example, he would write in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. To Philemon and to Timothy, he would call him his dearly beloved brothers in Christ. Saul, you see, had a new relationship with the church. The man who once sought to destroy the church now was in fellowship with it. Evidence not only by that brotherly affection, but also through the faithful proclamation now of the very message of the gospel that he once sought to destroy. Saul was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ. In the synagogues, that is, uh, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him, then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in the brass basket. There was fellowship. There was a partnership in the gospel. They were serving together in the church there in Damascus. Brother Saul was now of the member of the church he came to destroy. Paul had a new reverence for God. He had a new relationship with the church. He had a new responsibility to the world. He now became an ambassador for Christ and a debtor to all men. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to Ananias, Go thy way. Saul is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before all the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. His message was to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan and to the power of God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. The Lord said, that is in me. Paul would respond in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And this is our message. Be reconciled to God. 
He became an ambassador for Christ. He became a debtor to all men. Acts 26, 15, Paul was instructed, Thou shalt be his witness, that is the Lord's witness, unto all men. Paul would write in Romans 1, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks uh, and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So much as much as in me, I've given my whole heart and I've given my, lo- my whole life. I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the risk, I'll hazard my life for the cause of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You might remember Dr. James Kennedy. Passed away in 2007. He was a founder of Evangelism Explosion. It was an evangelistic outreach program. Uh, that uh, many churches utilized back in the 1980s. I went through this at Calvary Baptist Church in Plymouth, Michigan, 40 years ago. He once said, when it comes to sharing our faith, most Christians are like an Arctic river. We're frozen at the mouth. We are terrified of what others may think how they might respond, what they might say to our co-workers. But we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, not silent saints. Acts 15 describes men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think of an example from the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. By order of King Manasseh, Isaiah was sewn through, put in a log and sewn through with a saw. We think of the stoning of Stephen that we talked about this morning in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Or about the 12 apostles, Fox's book of martyr tells us that all of the apostles suffered a cruel and violent death because of their faith in Christ, all except for John the Baptist, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. These are men that hazarded their life for the cause of Christ. And we think of the Apostle Paul, this one faithful life. In his closing message to Timothy, final book that he would pen, his final letter, his final thoughts. I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. See, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things become new. Paul had a new reverence for God, a new relationship with the church. 
and a new responsibility to the world. How do we look at the fruit of a person's life and know that they are Christians, genuinely? Because they have a new reverence for God, one they didn't have before. A desire to worship God in spirit and truth, to cry out to him, Abba, Father. Because they have a new relationship with the church. They identify with the person of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the message of the gospel. They are full in. And they understand that they have a new responsibility to the world. To sow the seed of that gospel message that others might come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Epics in the life of Paul. One faithful life. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.